I'm Howard Brown, the pastor here at Christ Central Church, and um, had a little awkward pause right there. Let's see if I can get back into it again. I'm Howard Brown, the pastor here at Christ Central Church, and welcome to to you, especially those whose uh, this is your fir- this is your first time here. And um, we have been going through this book Habakkuk, and it's been quite surprising um, for me. And I know, as I've heard from some of you, um, this little book, this little minor prophet, minor as it's called, has some major themes in it for our lives, some heavy stuff um, that we've been going through. And as we enter our last two weeks um, through this book, things have climaxed since we first saw the prophet Habakkuk complaining and and crying out to God to do something about the sin of his people. God says he's on it and has has a plan to let the Babylonians take over God's people and their country. Habakkuk challenges God's decision to be so heavy-handed on his people. But God counters, letting Habakkuk know that this is going to happen, but that people uh, could live through this thing only if they live by faith in him. This, chapter 3, is Habakkuk's song of resignation, if you will, and, and trust in the plan of God, and most importantly, in the God of the plan. And in this song, he sings God's praises by, by painting and describing God as a marvelous hero, warrior God, who was not only coming to defeat evil, but to save and, and rescue people from this broken world. And like we saw last week, it is imperative that you and I today have this hero, this, this conquering warrior God, to overcome our impossible enemies, the ones separating us from him. And somehow, our God, whose fierce warrior actions are, are here lifted up in this song, can and has gotten a bad rap, right? As being the mean God, the, the mean judgmental God of the Old Testament, right? In readings and passages like today, he can come off like, like the God, our cynical and religiously skittish friends and family. Thank you. You know. They like to throw him under the bus as an explanation of why they honestly, I love that word, I just honestly can't completely be sold out or believe in a God of the Bible who is so wrathful and vengeful and warrior-like. But not only is he the God that, you know, our friends like to throw under the bus or blame for their lack of belief in the Bible, But he is the God you would like to sometimes believe retired, right? That the the God of the Old Testament, that grumpy one that went to war, the grumpy old age God has retired and has wisely let his nicer divine counterpart and son Jesus take over the God business. But this is the same God whom verse 13 says goes out for the salvation of people like you and me. Let me clear something up. 
Jesus didn't put the wrathful God of the Old Testament into retirement. He simply, and more profoundly, by drawing people by grace, gave the warrior God more battles to win and more of our enemies to crush and be mean to. And that is good news for those who are saved and being saved by grace. Because he will, God will be relentless and fierce and furious and destructive and judgmental and intolerable towards anything and everything, great and small, that does not give him glory and thus is harmful to you and me, ultimately mean to you and me. I entitled this sermon, The Mean Old Testament God is Back. But like LL Cool J confidently corrected us in his hip-hop song, Mama Says Knock You Out. We really shouldn't call it a comeback because he's been here for years. Right? It is just important that we bring him back in our minds and hearts, in our remembrance and lives, that we praise and welcome who God is fully for our salvation as the God who for the love of people like you and me first promises, promises to be mean to evil. Who secondly forces nature to be mean to evil. And finally, delivers a furious onslaught that is mean to evil. One of, the, one of the interesting things we saw when we started in Habakkuk was that in complaining to God, Habakkuk was simply, as we say, preaching to the choir, right? When I was a pastor in Baltimore at Forest Park Presbyterian, had a noonday Bible study, and the average age of that noonday Bible study was 75. And I would get in there, and, and I would be opening up the word. and be, It's like five people. And after they finished talking about the prescriptions, <laughs> seriously, and who had to go to the nursing home and all of that and kids, and we finally got to the bottom. And I was excited. Let me tell you what the word is saying, y'all, y'all. And we had one lady in there, Miss Grinnell. God rest her soul. She's finally where she always wanted to be after becoming a Christian. She wanted want to be with her Lord. She's there. But Miss Grinnell, when I would get excited, let me tell y'all what the scripture's saying. She would say, we know, Pastor Brown, we know. <laughs> but why you keep coming every noon, huh? Huh? But that's like your mama. You couldn't say nothing to her. Habakkuk's observations and complaints were already known, already embraced and embodied by God. God had a divine dissatisfaction and distaste with all the unjust sinful mess going on in the world way before Habakkuk brought it to his attention. And in chapter three, it's a recognition and wake up call for Habakkuk and us, not God, of just how on this thing God was and already had been, right? Look at the historical allusions here in the chapter 3 of, of, of God's dealings with evil. 
according to verse 8 that you have before us, it is referenced as an allusion to imparting the Red Sea so his people could be freed from sinful slavery. And then verse 10 is a throwback to the flood when God used the waters not only from above, but the tidal waves from the deep, from below, from the deep oceans to cover the earth. And then in verse 11, when the moon and, and, and sun stand still, it's a look back at Joshua when God made the sun stand still as he defeated the enemies on the battlefield. But these things happened and are happening throughout history because God had and has a standing promise from the very beginning when he talks about crushing the head of the serpent in the Garden of Eden. He has an ongoing and solid divine back promise to be mean to evil, which means God is already pumped and primed to deal with sin and wickedness. I'm going to take another shot at review of what we saw last week in verse 8. But it describes God getting divinely upset. The first word in this verse 8, wrath, means heating up. And then anger, the next word, means that God was huffing and puffing and doing the war dance like Ray Lewis did before the game. He was beating his chest and flexing in anger, breathing heavily. God was and is pumped and hyped and has been since the fall of Adam and Eve to battle and to win the war against brokenness in this world. And it is safe to say that, that he's pumped about the fact that he is going to win and gets to demean evil on the way. But he's not only pumped, but God is primed to deal with and crush and demolish sin and evil. Again, the last word in the list of words for God's mean disposition in verse 8, you have wrath. Then it says, was your anger? And then finally, your indignation or explosion. God is not just the bomb, right? But he is a detonating bomb of eschatological pure dominance and defeat of all against him and you and me. And look at verse 9 here. Habakkuk says, you, you strip the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. The same word for bow here is used for rainbow. And I bring your attention to it because after the flood with Noah was over, the, the bow, if you will, or rainbow, was a sign of God's promise made to the earth. But this bow in verse 9 here is a different kind of promise. This goes with the promise to take out the adversaries of God's goodness and holiness and his people. For Habakkuk to sing that he sees that God stripped the, the sheath from the bow and the bow is in his hand, it means God took the thing out of the holster and is brandishing it. It was no longer a concealed weapon of one day, this might come in handy if things go awry, for God, things had already gone awry. And for God, that means he is pumped and primed to use it. Which means it's already been in being and will be used. And if it weren't enough, the line here that he's calling for many arrows, it's kind of hard to understand when you look at the original language. But if we were to mix all the meanings together, which I like to do, which I think gives us the best understanding, God has actually vowed these arrows. 
He's put his promise word on the destructive and judgmental weapons against the world of evil. In other words, like people say these bullets have names on it, these arrows like bullets have names on it. They have destinations, they have designations and dates and times and promises on them. They are locked and loaded and predestined and predetermined when time began to redeem the world of what's wrong with them. In fact, some have already been discharged, shot out from the bow and into history until each arrow hits its promise by God, not always known to us, Mark. It's safe to say that God has arrows named for and aimed at sin and Satan and sickness and poverty and greed and injustice, and abuse, and fear, and racism, and sexism, and suffering, and depression, depression, and yes, even death itself. God has promised a long time ago, and is pumped and primed to be mean to what has been, and is, and will be mean to us, and for his glory, right? That's in the way of the freedom for us to know, and love, and enjoy him from now until forever. So you and I can confidently and humbly look at our world and look inward, right, at all the things and people and situations and setbacks and and kingdoms and circumstances that despise and seek to demean a, a healthy and spiritually full by God's grace you and say to it and be promised and assured that it has a God-destructive, decisive, pump-primed and promised surety, right? Without a doubt, arrow of God's wrath, anger, indignation, and meanness on it. I said this last week, your sin and struggles and weight is nothing for God. In the scope of eternity, past and present, God has put out a hit on it. And guess what? It is all done. We just have to patiently watch and wait for the arrows of God's wrath to deal his meanness on it. That's what it means to live by faith. Looking to the skies, if you will. Seeing that God has an arrow for this. God has something to deal with this. I don't know what it is in your life, but you can be sure that that arrow is already discharged and crossing the skies of time and coming to take care of what is hurting and harming you. And things get so mean when God is upset at evil that poor old nature gets in, right? Let me be careful here. Because I know how much y'all love dogs, and I do too. It's almost, but not really, like God comes home and kicks his dog, right? Because he is angry and he can, right? No, it's not true, right? And as we look at verse 9 where he splits the earth, and in verse 10 and 11 it says this, The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice, and it lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. And then the last verse 15, You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty war- waters. 
The answer to Habakkuk's rhetorical question in in, in verse 8 of of whether God would just want it to kick the proverbial dog and making the earth act the way it did was no. God is not being mean to nature. He is forcing nature to be mean to the evil in this world, which when it happens becomes a real wake-up call to us in our world that guess what? As the God of creation who made everything, the forces of nature are his to control. I like the description of verse 10 of the waters from the deep. It says the raging waters swept on. And it said, the deep gave forth its voice and lifted its hands on high. And, of course, you kind of have the raging waters, the, the tidal waves that are, that are, you know, mile high tidal waves coming on the earth, coming from the deep part of the world to cover the land. You know what they signify? They lift their voices and their hands to God. They worship God. They're signifying that he is their ruler, and they do what he says. And then the moon and the sun, the so-called rulers of day and night, stop and bow down and let God go first through as the true light and ruler of the earth that they get their power from. And from all we see in ancient history is that the fallen world and its people stand against God, right? Believing that somehow along, you know, that the, the world and all in it, and they're living, living or not, is somehow under their control, that they could be as bad as they wanted to be because they had the world in their hands. Remember Scarface? The world is my... Okay, anyway. But they even had puppet gods to do play-play worship with that they would say, that would say improved and gave them the right to live foul before God and be oppressive and cruel to others, using nature to do it and even be cruel to nature. But God wants nature freed from evil to follow him in his plan to do good. You ever seen those repo shows on TV? I don't really watch them, but I watch a couple. Because the repo people are real interesting people. You know, sometimes just like something bad happened to somebody else. Y'all, y'all evil. Y'all know. You'd be like, ah, your car got taken, you know. But they can be so heart-wrenching and mean sometimes, right? Imagine someone goes out to go to work or leave work or go out on a date. That's the worst with your girl, Right? Come on, girl, I got a new car. And there's a pickup truck, right? I mean, a tow truck, rather. And it is at that moment that they realize the car they so-called own really belongs to and is a property of the bank. That if the relationship is abused or forsaken or lost or not paying, the bank will take it back. Surprise. This is the mean surprise to the proud and in charge and a metaphorical mountains and hills and rulers and the rich who misuse the poor as described in verse 14 that laugh when they do it and rejoice when they treat people badly. That guess what? All the things and stuff that you think you build your life for and around, whether it is a mountain that you worship a false god on or a mountain of a person or personality, even if it's yourself who you worship or has been oppressive, God will make sure it or them are repossessed by the one who actually owns it. 
He will cause our sense of wealth and worth and power and, and, and upward mobility and foundations of life, fine life of fine living and flourishing by God to break down and fall apart and move out and be towed away out of your control and under his without your asking or expectation. One day the world's going to come out thinking it's in control and control will be gone. And it makes sense in our world. All economic, political, governmental, popular, technological, scientific systems, some of our sports and entertainment or intellectual leaders that seek to control and harness and get greedy off and self-sufficient apart from God in natural ways. Either they can run fast or catch something or, or maybe they're really funny or maybe they just got a lot of money or whatever. God, you know, God will cause those things to fail in ways that make us say with wonder, wow, what happened? Who's really in control here? Who really can be trusted? What really can be trusted? And God will take has taken financial systems, and it hits us the worst, like He did in this country back in the '30s, and even back in 2008. Oh, the real estate market. Oh, property, dirt, right? Dirt in the right part of the city. You thought it was yours. We thought it was ours, right? All the bigwigs thought it was theirs to, to build a big life on. Oh, we got dirt over here and dirt over here. And over here, we actually throwing dirt on some people and burying them. But we rich. And God took his dirt back. And God took his finger and he popped the bubble. Pop. God will call it up and mix it up and make things fall. Make things, make, make nature and our natural creations fail and fall apart in and fall in and on and destroy and consume an evil world that thought it was and had everything they needed to keep feeling and acting secure and happy and self-centered and oppressive and evil and oppressed and opposed to God's glory and plan. It was like the evil world looked up to God and the knowledge of God and said, we got the rivers and the sun and the moon and they are making us rich and powerful and we don't need you, God. And God is like the sun and the moon. Y'all stop for a minute. Rivers, work. Worship me and come on and, 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 and seize, come on and, and make a tidal wave. And now they will be used to wreck and confuse and frustrate the world. I will take all your means away and actually turn them against you to be mean to you. But there's more here. Scripture tells us God will come with a furious and mean onslaught to deal with with evil. An onslaught that Habakkuk says that God himself leads. Look at the beginning of verse 12 going to verse 15. You march through the earth in fury. You thresh the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me. 
rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Who walks and with executive power orders and leads these furious and awesome and, and harsh things? God himself. It's hard to hear. Which means God takes evil and sin personally and comes with wrathful divine rightness and judgment to the world where he marches and threshes and crushes and lays bare and pierces and scatters and tramples with divine power, prominence, and precision. I think the problem we have with God being wrathful is that somehow in our mind, we imagine that he is and uses like, like our own weapons and, and armies that are bound to hurt and cripple innocence and, and the innocent in some way. That there is no truly just war. There are always, right, peripheral friendly fire, cat friendly fire casualties of war and wrong motives in every battle except the Lord's work in battle. Like the arrows with names and exactness, God goes, yes, he goes buck wild furious on the earth with divine special op precision so that as he does all the terrible and tumultuous and earth shattering things to people and nations and becomes, you know, the, the, and, and because no one is innocent before God, as he does it, he remains holy and above reproach, so much so that there is, hear me now, there is no such thing as God accidentally or mistakenly or wrongly or unfairly causing pain or suffering or meanness on anything or anyone. God does it, it's right. If God allows it for his purposes, then let me tell you something. His purposes, we don't always see or understand. So, so take that out the equation. But what the scripture has given us a clear vision of is that when God brings his correction and judgment on the earth, he is right all the time he does it. Who are we to judge him? And even if he uses, hear this, this is hard. Even if he uses imperfect means or ways to accomplish it, think about who he's using in Habakkuk. He's using the Babylonian Empire. The God-ordained judgment and vengeance and punishment is ultimately the Lord's doing, even if we don't know exactly how and when and with who it is exactly happening to. But here's where things get sticky. You know when things get sticky? When we, try, when we decide when and how God is doing his thing, right? This is a prophet, right? So, so, so he got it right because God is telling him exactly how and when he's going to do it. And then he's telling us the Babylonian army's coming through and here's what they're going to do. All right? So you got the book of Habakkuk. There's no such thing as the book of Howard. But we, with prophetic surety, 
From our human perspective, that war or that disease or that natural disaster was the wrath of God for this thing, right? We can't say and be sure of that. We can't be sure that God is personally in charge, a divine and holy. We can be sure, rather, that God is personally in charge, a divine and holy onslaught of sin, Satan, and evil in the world, and that sometimes his weapons of choice are natural disasters and, like this case, evil armies and people. Okay, we're going to get through the hard part. I even made the baby cry. But there's hope. God is in control of dealing with the brokenness of this world, and he is not playing around. He is leading and bringing with his own hands and feet and mouth, bringing a holy and decisive onslaught of divine wrath on all that's wrong. Logically, only a holy God himself can or even lead such an onslaught. Only God himself can be responsible for that kind of final and absolute judgment. And the God of the Bible alone is a warrior, commander-in-chief, righteous, powerful, and pure enough to do it. He leads it. You know why? Because you and I will not. No, you won't. And you cannot and have not led the charge well enough or at all enough to deal with the world's suffering and brokenness. We are just not that good. We are not that holy and loving and powerful. We all have a threshold, right? I do. And limitations, not only in ability, but some of us are better than God, right? We're nicer. We're more merciful than God. So we don't believe in really dealing out any kind of punishment or, 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 or trying to deal with evil or evil systems in any way, right? We, we won't call sin, sin. You know what? I, I'm in here too. We are too cozy and comfortable with some and certain evils. Come on, y'all. You know some things you will excuse more and easier and all together more than others? Man, you get in some deep conversation. I just don't think that's right, you know. It's okay. It's okay. We are too convicted by our own sin to feel right or powerful or holy enough to deal with our own mess. And truth be told, we have tried and failed to fix and order our private, much less public worlds on our own. We are naturally good at harboring fugitives of sin. We love our fugitive sin. It makes us feel good and not so alone. And though you can stand it, and in a way that you can stand it, God will not and has not stood idly by and letting it take stronghold in your life in his world forever. He is and has to lead this thing. I don't know about you, but many times I'm too afraid, too conquered too consumed by things, sometimes too shamed by my own sin to be mean or strong enough against the mess in my own life. I need a God who will lead with fury against all that is eating my soul. 
against all that is eating my relation with him and clouding you from seeing his love and grace and glory together. And God knows that. So he leads the way and we follow. And we get brave, right? And we gain steam and we should gain faith after God has cleared the way of the mountains and hills and fierce fires and waves and physical and spiritual and emotional forces in our lives and world. We basically get to live in and off of the spoils of God's leading. This reminds me of what verse 5 said about God. You don't have it in your reading today. It says, pestilence leads the way, but a plague follows God. And it means that after God has gone through leading an onslaught, he leaves an onslaught. Look at verse 13 with me. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. A lot of interpretive, interpretive uh, possibilities for this one, but let me simply explain it this way. The thing about the thigh to the neck is an allusion to a house whose roof and foundation have been taken away. A house where it is only a matter of time before the walls and the structure fall in on itself. It is also a picture of a headless and legless bust, right? That God has come and cut the head and feet off of like some of those Italian ruined sculptures, right? And then look at verse 14, what it says. You pierced with his own arrows the head of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. Interesting way of putting it. God leaves evil. Those who have mistreated the poor and ignored God's truth without any leadership. The head is gone, right? He's turned the light off and leaves the evil kingdoms and institutions and philosophies to like a house without a roof and foundation to fall in and collapse on itself under its own weight. This is an army without a head or leader who in confusion kills and fights each other in the dark and ends themselves. The God who leads the onslaught leaves evil in a mean state of onslaught. For God to leave a headless, legless, stump and roofless and foundationless house and turned on itself enemy means this. God has already defeated the enemy and he leaves an unwinding onslaught which also means that the enemies of God and you and me are flexing and acting out with no real power, with no head or authority or hope, and with no standing. They have been decapitated and crippled by God to be self-destructive, to create their own bubble, to use their own godless product and overdose, to play like and with fire, to only get burned. When God comes through history with wrath, he leaves and has left an injured Fallen foe, he is letting evil be evil and it is not a passive act. The Bible says God is piercing them with their own arrows. So I do watch Walking Dead. How did he transition to that? And there is a show, there is an episode called Tainted Meat. Yeah, it's about to get real cruel in here for a minute. So... There's a group of people, because, you know, the world's like in post-modern fall apart, like, because everybody's turned into zombies. So there's a group of people who decide the best way to live is get people and eat them. Yeah, cannibals. And um, 
So they get one guy and they eat his leg, right? Part of it. And they kind of taunt him. Like, ha ha, we ate you. We got you. You thought you'd get away. And he, he kind of pulls his shirt down and he says, I've been bitten by a zombie. You've eaten tainted meat. Ha 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 ha. He starts laughing. What's this got to do with me talking about today? I don't know. I thought it was just a good illustration. No. You know, it starts this. God has allowed the world when it mistreats the poor, when it takes advantage of people in the oppressed to eat tainted meat, to begin to be a, a group of people who, who, who feast on each other's sins in such a way what they are self-destructive. But this is not all depressing news. Mean for sure, but not all depressing. Look at the end of this meanness, and it's the same as last week. Again, look at verse 13. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. The salvation of his anointed means and points ultimately to Jesus coming the first and last time. And so when Jesus called the Savior to the world, it meant that Jesus, though all shy looking and painted and portrayed and loving as lovingly walking the earth, you know, he's always standing like this, you know, looking all with the lamb in his hand, you know, as he was saving the lost sheep and saving his people. Understand when Jesus came, he was pumped and primed with the promise to crush the head of a certain serpent, defeat sin and brokenness in this world and deal a mean and finalizing blow to evil. Do you know what happened on the cross? When Jesus died and then when he rose again, it's all right here in Habakkuk. What does it say? Verse 9, when Jesus died and rose again, he stripped the sheath from his bow, calling for many arrows. He split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and rise. The raging water swept on the deep, gave forth its voice, and it lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place, and at the light of your arrows that they sped, at, at the flash of their glittering spear, you marched through the earth with fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Jesus, in other words, sin, Satan, the grave, and death were defeated. Jesus, the salvation of God's anointed, mentioned in verse 13, was the meanest thing that could have happened to evil and the best thing that could have happened to sinners like you and me. Because at the cross and at the resurrection, Jesus literally took the head and feet off of sin and Satan and poverty and addiction and strife and loneliness and injustice and heartache and pain and fear and suffering. He took the feet off the power and wielding of those by evil people and institutions that would wrongly try to hurt you and blind you and hold you back from God's manifest destiny and salvation for you. And you know what is truly remaining? And what we are feeling and complaining about and suffering right now, simply the writhing and inner fighting vortex of what is left 
of evil. Evil is like a snake with its head cut off, with the mouth still moving and the tail swinging around. You and I are simply hearing the sound of God's enemies destroying themselves. What you feel and experience in this world sometimes is simply the sound and rumbling. And if you're close enough, the pains of mountains crumbling. What is the scripture saying? Jesus has finished and he has dealt a mean and meaningful blow to this broken world and it will not and cannot recover. It can only be redeemed. And it gives a whole new meaning to that sweet, cute, harmless cross you wear on your neck. I told you guys this before. If you go in my office, there's a, there's a stick cross. I remember Harrison Clark made it. Put some scotch tape with some branches from the yard. Pretty creative kid. I'm like, oh, craw, craw, Clark, you made daddy a cross? And I held it. He said, no, daddy. It's a sword. <laughs> when Jesus came, he laid all that you suffer all that you struggle in, all the history that's causing your life pain now, all the sin you want to get rid of, all the loneliness you bear. And the Bible says he cut the head and the feet off and he has laid it bare from the neck to the thigh. And he did that when he first came. The Bible says when he comes back, He's going to finish the rest that was left of a thigh and a neck and was left of a writhing serpent with his head cut off. Jesus is going to finish it. And the scripture even tells us that when he returns again, the sun and the moon will stand still and the, the sky will grow dark. And when he comes, he will be the light. And all he's coming to do is finish what he's already defeated. And so you know what? We need to rejoice. We can live with confidence. You know, this verse that Habakkuk has here, he says, you pierce with his own arrows the head of his warriors. And it says this, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. And you know what? We need to take back that verse for us. Because your Lord Jesus is that mean God of the Old Testament that is a loving Savior that you know right now. And he has been mean in such a way that no longer should the world rejoice, but God's people and people who would come to know Jesus should rejoice even more. It is time today so we do a victory dance and sing a victory song, not because things aren't bad or evil or struggle, but because the mean Old Testament God of the Bible is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. God come and went and returning in the flesh for the salvation of broken and once broken on oppressed sinners. Like you and me. The God, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
promises to be mean to your evil. He promises to deal an onslaught to that evil. He promises that it's defeated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you.